And he called to the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Father, you are a good Father who cares for your children. You give us what we need, when we need it, in the amount that we need. You have called us to yourself and said, cast your cares on me, for I care for you. And Father, you are a sovereign God, whose power is infinite, whose wisdom is all-knowing. We can trust you, because you are good. Father, we confess so often we don't trust you and we cling to our cares and we worry about our cares and we fret and woe and we make foolish decisions that only make our problem worse when the wisdom and the goodness and the love of our Father who has promised to take care of us has called us to cast our cares with reckless abandon upon him. Father, we confess that we need you. We need you when we don't think we need you. And we need you more than we can imagine when we know we need you. 
I thank you that you are a, a father who is good and loving and provides for your children. And you are working all things according to the purposes of your will, though we endure times of difficulties and suffering and dark valleys that um, bring chills to our soul. It is, Father, that is you who is leading us and comforting us and guide us. It is you who leads us beside still waters for your namesake. We can trust you, for you are good and your love endures forever. Father, we come to you in behalf of our brothers and sisters this morning who are suffering from physical ailments, whether it be sickness, whether it be disease, whether it be mental anguish and mental illness. And we pray that your love would be felt by them in their heart through your word, but also through the body of Christ, that we would minister to those in our congregation in need. I pray for those who are away from us this morning that you would provide for them and bring them safe back to us. That we may have communion and fellowship with them and encourage one another and receive their gifts and give them our gifts that we may build them up and make them more like Christ. May we guard and love and protect one another for your glory and our satisfaction. Father, be with us today as we see the call and the cost to discipleship, which is a call to surrender all, that we may have the goodness and the glory and the satisfaction that overwhelms, that is only found in Christ. In his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Gotta get situated up here. We continue to go through the book of Mark. There we go. Okay. Judson Van Deveter was raised in a Christian home in the late in the mid-1800s. And at the age of 17, he trusted in Jesus Christ as his Savior. He graduated from college, he earned an art degree, and he became a teacher and administrator at a local high school. Van Der Veter was a gifted musician who sang and he composed music and he played 13 different instruments. We thought Faith had some talent. This guy could play 13 instruments. Um, somebody said all at the same time, I doubt that. Um, but he was faithfully used uh, those talents as a me uh, member of the local Methodist Episcopal Church where he was a member and also involved in the music there. And for five years after his conversion, he struggled with the internal battle within him between pursuing a medical career, or I'm sorry, a musical career and going into full-time gospel ministry. He wrote these words uh, it says, for sometimes I have struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last, the pivotal hour of my life has come, and I surrendered all. I'm not sure why I'm not getting a, a signal, Chris, but if you could try to, you have my notes to stay on top of that. Um, 
A new day was ushered into my life, he continued, wrote, I became an evangelist and discovered deep down in my soul a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart, and touching a tender chord, he caused me to sing, and he penned the words, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. This morning, as we look at the words of Mark and the story of the disciples being sent and the death of John the Baptist, we learn this big idea is that the cost of discipleship is complete surrender to Jesus Christ. The cost of discipleship is complete surrender to Jesus Christ. And specifically, we see three ways that disciples surrender to Jesus. And the first way is this, surrender to Christ's authority. We surrender to Christ's authority, we surrender to Christ's mission, and we surrender to Christ's suffering. His mission, his authority, and his suffering. Notice as we go into the first point, surrender to Christ's authority in verse, the second half of verse, or verse 6 and verse 7. Jesus, as he was in his ministry, he performed many miracles. Jesus befriended sinners, Jesus healed the sick, but that was not the reason that he came. The reason that he came, you can see here in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, and Jesus said to them and to the disciples, let us go to the next town, because you see the disciples were pulling him, hey, there's a lot of people that are here for you, I want you to go and, and to, to minister to them to heal their sick and cast out their demons and do that. And Jesus said, let's go to the next towns and the next villages that I may preach there also for that, for preaching and for teaching was why Jesus came. See, when Jesus taught the word and when he taught and he preached the word to his people, he was giving a clearer and more precise picture of who he was and why he had come. See, we can very much read through the narrative of Jesus' life and begin to think that Jesus was just here to heal and to teach and to do all those things and to bring comfort. But we realize that Jesus didn't simply come to ease people's discomfort. Jesus came to bring people peace with God. Jesus didn't come to just bring peace on earth. He came to enable sinners to have peace with God. He didn't come to simply serve the poor. He came to lavish the riches of God's grace on spiritual paupers. So as we go through the book of Mark, we can be distracted by the overabundance of miracles and teaching and that blow our mind. But at, through the lens of the gospel that Jesus has called us, he says every parable, every teaching, every story gives us a deeper and clearer understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be his disciple. So we see this as Jesus in the beginning of verse 6, or the latter half of verse 6, he is teaching in the villages, and then in verse 7 he calls his disciples to himself, and he sends his disciples of himself. The authority of Jesus calls them to surrender him to his call and to his teaching. 
Notice verse 7. And Jesus went out among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The authority of Jesus calls a disciple to himself, and he sends them out with his authority to preach his method or message. They, we are all, as disciples, ambassadors, representatives of Jesus everywhere we go. Notice the, the first part of surrendering to Christ's authority is surrendering to the call of Christ. With two words, Jesus profoundly changed the lives and the trajectory of the disciples forever. Two words, follow me. They called fishermen away from the nets and they immediately came. He called a tax collector away from the tax booth and he immediately came. With two words, follow me, he uh, claimed authority over their lives today and tomorrow and for eternity. They were no longer working for themselves. They were working for Jesus. They were no longer going where they wanted to. They were following Jesus. They were no longer acting how they saw fit. They were obeying how Jesus had called them to be. See, brothers and sisters, to be a disciple of Jesus begins by surrendering to his call and submitting to his authority in everything. Jesus is your new master. Jesus is your new Lord. Jesus is your king. You are not. To follow Jesus and be his disciples is to relinquish your throne. And Jesus takes it over completely, wholly. Not only do we submit and surrender to the authority of Christ's call, but also the, the authority where, of his sending mission. When disciples surrender to the authority of Christ, they're called by Christ and they're sent by Christ. The twelve were sent by Jesus as his representatives to the villages. They didn't preach what they wanted to preach and teach what they wanted to preach. They pro preached and proclaimed what Jesus told them to proclaim, and they taught what Jesus had taught them. They were not called to be innovative. As a pastor and as a church, we are not called to be innovative in the 21st century. Like we have to come up with something new on behalf of Jesus. What we're called to do is be faithful to what Jesus taught and to what Jesus proclaimed and who Jesus is. Not only were they equipped with the message of the kingdom, they were empowered. And you see that the, the, the narrative says they were empowered to overcome the unclean spirits that were obstacles that stood in their way. The demons which we saw, this army of demons which fell at the feet of Jesus, now the, the disciples had authority and message from Jesus to cast these demons out by the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God that transforms lives. Ocean Park, Jesus brings his people under his authority and he commissions them for his service. The question as we read through this morning is, have you surrendered to Jesus' authority as a disciple? You can't be near Jesus and observing Jesus and be his followers. You must come under his authority as his, he will be your Lord and Savior and Master and King. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you to seek to maintain control over your life. 
It doesn't work. Well, Jesus, you get an hour on Sunday mornings, maybe on Wednesdays if I'm feeling up to it, uh, and, and him, him be your Lord. You can't see Jesus as your cosmic butler or your divine genie who you rub the lamp and you say the right words and he gets you out of a jam when you need. You can't use Jesus as your platform for fame and prosperity and security and blessing. You can't come to Jesus and you demand Jesus to do things your way. Disciples of Jesus do it the way Jesus is called. Jesus is not your rubber stamp to get really what you really want. Following Jesus requires that you let go of the grip on your life and you give it to Jesus to use it how he deems fit. It's the very thing we're talking about in Sunday school. If you realize the cost of that it was to Jesus, though mercy and grace of God is free, it did not come free to the one who gave his life. And we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is sheer grace from north to south, east to west, inside to outside. There is nothing that we brought to our salvation other than our sin. And if it is truly grace alone, there is nothing that Jesus can't ask you to do when he redeems you out of your sin. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, the first question, I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Jesus Christ, my Savior. Following Jesus' relenting control of your life and service of Jesus, to live how Jesus lives, to think how Jesus thinks, and to do what Jesus commands. All to Jesus I surrender. Go back one, I'm sorry. My, my clicker click kicked in. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. The cost of discipleship requires complete surrender to Jesus Christ. Not only are we called to surrender to Jesus' authority, we see that in his call and in his sending, we're also called to surrender to Jesus' mission in verses 8 through 13. Surrender to Jesus' mission. When our family goes on vacation, we often find ourselves, after we get there or when we get home, saying we packed way too much. We pack for hot days and we pack for cold days. We pack for the pool, we pack for the beach, we pack for food and games and in case of emergency. And it's not uncommon to see our family in the airport trying to rearrange our luggage to get under the threshold of for the checking in our luggage. Why? Because you never know when you'll need something or some of this stuff. Yet as we read the narrative of Jesus, we see the complete opposite that Jesus requires his disciples to do when he sent them out. Jesus calls his disciples not only to surrender to his authority where he sends them, but also his mission and how he calls them to go, to do things his way. 
notice, Jesus is calling on this mission to trust Christ's provision. Verse 8 and 9. Jesus charged them to take nothing on their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter house, house, stay there until you depart from there. Jesus gives them very specific instructions concerning what his disciples are allowed to bring in completing his mission. He gives them four things they're allowed to bring. A staff, a tunic, a belt, and sandals. And if you notice the text, the things that Jesus prohibits them from taking are not frivolous things, but they're reasonable things and they're practical things. See, as you're reading through in the first century and probably nowadays too, nobody would begrudge the disciples from taking a little extra bread where they went. Nobody would begrudge them a knapsack to carry some of their necessities in. Nor would they begrudge someone to take money in case of emergency or even a second tunic. And you're like, whenever I go anywhere, I never leave without two tunics. And you know, you're probably like that as well. But a tunic in that was kept people warm. And if they didn't have a place to stay, they would lay it on the ground or use it as a pillow. And nobody would begrudge the people from traveling with any of these things. But Jesus says, don't take these things. Why? Jesus wanted the, his disciples to trust what he would provide. You see, what happens is the more essentials that we take, the more we trust our essentials and the more we trust our supplies. And when those things run out, what happens? Then we trust Jesus. In the movie tonight, not in the movie, but in the book, it talks about Don and Carol Richardson had a very, this clash of culture where there was a man that was dying in the village and it was a very strange thing that the Sowies believed, that they believed they went in this, the soul had departed his body already. The sorcerer had said this, the, the witch doctor in the village said, oh, the soul has already left the body, just uh, let the body die that they may go into peace, into rest. And Don Richardson said, no, he's breathing, he's alive. And he, they started to give him medicine. And it lingered for weeks until a point where he says, we can't give him any more medicine. And the man was barely holding on. And he says, what we need to do is pray. And, and to his shame, he looked at his wife, Carol, and says, I can't believe we haven't thought of this yet. And they stopped giving him the medicine and they started to pray. And by God's grace and his miracle, the man uh, revived miraculously. And the Sowies were, many Sowies were one to Christ because rather than trusting in Western medicine, they trusted in the miracle working, life giving, sovereign God of the universe. How often do we trust? our security and our provision and our wisdom and our education and our teaching and our relationships and our connections. How often do we, we trust our nest egg and our stockpiles and our insurance rather than trusting in our sovereign God? And how many times, Ocean Park, have we passed up an opportunity to serve Jesus because we don't think we have the resources or we don't think we have the time and we don't have any, all the answers and it's not clear rather than trusting the Lord to provide what we need when we need it in the amount that we need. 
See, Jesus wants us to put our trust in him and not our supplies and not our money and not our training and trust him for everything. And that's scary. That's terrifying when we have to trust the Lord. But that's what he does to cut the strings and the attachments to this world. Furthermore, not only do they need to trust Jesus for provision, but when they go to the houses, he says, don't bounce from house to house trying to get a free upgrade. Well, this family invited me here, and this house is kind of small, and it's tight, and we're all, you know, clumped up in this, and this house over here is quite large, and I have a separate room and all of this. Trust the provisions that the Lord has provided and proclaim his message. The master who commissioned them for service was able to provide for that service every day, every challenge, in every place. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Chris, go ahead and bring that up for us. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Jesus is giving the illustration of the lilies of the field. And he's giving the illustration of the ravens with their, with their babies. And, and he says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. These are common, everyday things that your Father, your good heavenly Father that we taught the children, knows what you need. So what are we called to do? Seek first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things shall be added unto you. When we seek the kingdom, proclaiming the message, submitting to the authority of Christ, and doing things His way, He'll provide for our needs. He gives us what we need, when we need it, and the amount that we need. He doesn't just send us to His work and leave us out to figure out the details, but He calls us to trust His provision. He's able to give us what we need because He is trustworthy. He's a good Heavenly Father. We trust his provision and proclaim his message. Notice in 11 and 13, through 13. If any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, and when you leave, shake off the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed the people should repent. And they cast out many demons, anointed with many oil who were sick, and he healed them. The message that Christ gave his disciples to proclaim was the call to what? The call to repentance. To call to people to renounce their allegiances to the, to the um, kingdoms of this world and to declare their allegiance to Christ the King. To abandon the paths of self-discovery and self-righteousness and trust the work of Jesus. To turn away from their sin and their treasured sin and be able to turn to the righteousness that comes only from Christ. J.C. Ryle um, has a quote that here. It says, All need to be brought to a sense of their sins, a, to, uh, to a sorrow for them, to a willingness to give them up, and to a hunger and thirst for pardon. All, in a word, need to be born again and what? And flee to Christ. This is repentance unto life. But Jesus warns that when we preach repentance and we preach the repent for the kingdom of God has come, we will face rejection. 
not just the message, but the messenger. And when there is rejection, it will come and it will be often, they're given instructions to shake the dust off their feet. And that's a very foreign thing to us. But what happened when Jewish people would travel throughout the Mediterranean world and they would leave Israel uh, and go into Gentile nations, they would come back and when they got to the border of Israel, they would stop and they would take their shoes off and shake the dust off their shoes because the dust of Gentile lands would, would pollute the holy land of God's chosen people. And what Jesus is saying here is not a call of self-righteousness in judgment. It is so often I've heard people say, I'm just going to shake the dust of, of them off my feet. But what Jesus is doing is giving these people that are rejecting the repentance of, um, unto life into the kingdom of God as a symbolic warning to say, you are not the where you need to be. You are not the people of God. You are outside of the promises of God. It is a call to repentance. And all of us are, are, are do well to welcome and heed the message of Christ. Ocean Park, we will face rejection. If we are faithful to proclaim Christ's message, don't stop. I shared Jesus this week with a man sitting across the table, and I couldn't get him to stop texting. I'm like, dude, if you only knew the life that you are missing out. And I tried my best, and I couldn't get him to pay attention to me. I got to, yep, yep, oh yeah, yep. But he's texting the whole time. If only he knew the, the source of life for a dying world that he was not listening and he rejecting to. The only power to deliver captives from unclean spirits that hold them captive. The only medicine that was able to heal his soul, but demands total sacrifice and surrender. Ocean Bark, have you surrendered to the mission of Christ? Many of you say, yes, I uh, believe in Jesus and I trust Jesus and I, I am his disciple, but have you surrendered to his mission to do his work in his way? Are you too comfortable to go where he calls you to go or too fearful to be his disciple because you are afraid of being rejected by the world? Do you think your way is better and your comfort is paramount? Do you think Christ is insufficient to be able to understand your unique needs here in the 21st century? Are you missing out on the blessings of working in the kingdom because you have no idea the joy of God's provision and the blessings that he is calling you to share. Following Jesus is surrendering your comfort to the mission of Jesus, to trust his faithful provision and to proclaim his message faithfully. All to Jesus I surrender, surrender, humbly at his feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me Jesus, take me now. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to him, my precious Savior, I surrender all. The cost of discipleship is complete surrender to Jesus Christ.
Surrender to the authority of Jesus and surrender to the mission of Jesus. But we also see the third way is that we are called to surrender to Christ's suffering. As the disciples went out through the towns and villages proclaiming the message of the kingdom of, uh, of, of God, the name of Jesus began to spread rapidly. And as news of his power and his wisdom and his authority spread, people began to ask the question, who is this man? Even the news had trickled as far as Herod the Tetrarch. Some thought Jesus was uh, John the Baptist who was raised from the dead. Some thought Jesus was the prophet Elijah who had finally come back and fulfilled the promises of God. And some believed Jesus to be one of the prophets from the line of prophets that had been sent by God. Yet the answer started to puzzle, um, the answer that Mark brings us To answer that question is to the palace of a puppet king named Herod. Herod Antipas was one of ten of the sons of Herod the Great. And like George Foreman, who named all his sons George, Herod named all his sons Herod. Um, I guess he didn't want to call them all at one time, but just one name brings them all. But Herod Antipas was one of ten sons of Herod. His mother was a Samaritan, and he served about 4 A.D. to 35-ish B.C., and he was the Tetrarch. He was a minor ruler of one a quarter of the provinces of the kingdom of Rome. It's ironic that Mark calls him king because the very thing Herod his whole life was striving for was to be considered a king and that being a king was the very thing that cost him his life and cost him his soul. And there's juicy, juicy irony when Mark says King Herod because he was no king. But verse 16 and 17, he says, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He says, this is nobody new. This is not Elijah. This is John. The John that I killed. Because I think it had a profound impact. John's death had a profound impact on Herod. For it was Herod who had been sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. That when, when... Always notice, just on the side to this in Bible study, how a person is described. Bathsheba is never called David's wife. She's always called the wife of Uriah. Herodias is not called Herod's wife. He's called the wife of Herod's brother. That's significant. The the narrator, Mark, is, is, that is a red shining light that says, there's something significant here. Notice the title. So I won't charge you anything extra for that little tidbit of hermeneutics right there. So, um, this uh, Philip's wife because he had married her for John had been saying to Herod is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife see John the Baptist was a troublemaker to the established powers his radical message and his powerful style put him on a collusion uh, collision course with both religious and political powers and his ceaseless preaching was a reminder that the kingdom of God could not be ignored by the powers that be, and it was, his message was growing increasingly uncomfortable for them, both Pharisee and political leader alike. 
And John and Herod particularly uh, collided on Herod's twisted and gnarled family tree. See, Herod had fallen in love with his niece while he was married to another woman. And ultimately, Herod would die because the father of the woman he divorced came up and wiped him out. But Herod fell in love with his niece Herodias, who was married to his half-brother Philip at the time. Talk about awkward family get-togethers when that kind of thing happens. But John, seeing the gross immorality of Herod's marriage, boldly called Herod to repentance. He did the very thing that Jesus had sent the disciples out. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. God was moving and working, and John was the first line, like the first wave at D-Day, to go and invade the powers of the, of the, of the world. But Ocean Park proclaiming the message of the kingdom is a way to lose friends and infuriate people. But Herod feared John. And it says in the text that he saw him as a righteous and holy man, and uh, the eccentric prophet's preaching oddly intrigued him, and he liked to listen to John preach. Just enough that not to surrender his life to the kingdom of God, but to entertain him. But on the uh, other, other hand, Herodias, his wife, hated John with a bloodthirsty passion and because his message made her blood boil to the point that she says, I want him dead and would do anything to silence him. But she could not convince Herod to kill him. So like a bloodthirsty spider, she began to weave a web for the unsuspecting fly to get caught in and waited patiently for it to happen. Notice in verse 21 and 24, but the opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Tetrarchs don't have any power and the authority to do such a thing, but prideful, arrogant, people trying to impress make promises like this and she went out and said to her mother for what shall i ask and this was herodias's chance and she pounced the head of john the baptist her chance had come to silence the voice crying out in the wilderness and that day was on herod's birthday all the influential people of the land were there to honor Herod, so, uh, and he was loving every moment of it. So either Herodias um, sent her daughter in to dance for uh, Herod, and we presume it was an erotic dance, or she capitalized on her husband's foolishness to fulfill a vow he couldn't do. And she knew his lust for power and his cowardice before influential people that he would need to be able to climb up the ladder of society, and she presented him with a poison pill. Verse 25, and the, her, uh, the daughter came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry. I can imagine the air went out from him when he heard this request. Just because his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went 
and beheaded the prophet in the prison. Herod the fox was outfoxed by Herodias. His pride and his lust for hunger was too great to be embarrassed by Herodias in front of the most powerful, influential people. This cowardly puppet king murdered the righteous and good holy prophet. We see, when John's head fell, it didn't silence his message. For his message was given by God for the kingdom of heaven, and it would echo through all of those who would pick up the torch and further that call to repentance for the kingdom of God. The prophet may be dead, but the message of the kingdom could never be silenced. So we asked this question, and at first I was only going to preach the first part of it, but I realized that this was a a part of a larger narrative. Why in the world would uh, Mark add the death of John the Baptist into the story of the good news of Jesus Christ? Because no other place in Scripture does it talk about anybody else uh, other than Jesus and his encounters. This is exclusively talking about John. I believe the answer is found in my beloved Mark and Sandwiches. Two stories put together to teach one lesson. And what happens is the first story is split in half. And you can see the first part is 7 through 13. And then just one little tiny verse. Probably that, that little end piece of the bread is verse 30. And the disciples came back and told Jesus all that they had done. That's the end of the bread. But it's this meat of the story in John the Baptist that's put in the middle. Mark includes the story of John the Baptist to foreshadow the suffering that would come to Jesus and all who surrendered to Jesus' call to discipleship. What happened to John would happen to Jesus and would happen to disciples. It happens to all who face, who follow Jesus. The death of John the Baptist, brothers and sisters, is a sober reminder that anyone who follows Jesus will face the opposition from the world and and the power of the world. Herod used John for amusement and cut John's throat to save his own. Herodias hated John and patiently waited for an opportunity to destroy him. Those who surrender to Jesus' call to preach the message of the repentance to a hostile world will face them at some time, will face the same opposition that John faced and share in the sufferings that Jesus shared. Some of you will be missed opportunities and relationships because you're not willing to compromise your call to follow Jesus. Some of you will be disrespect and scorn because you believe such foolishness of the cross and of Jesus. Maybe at work, maybe in the university, maybe on Thanksgiving with your uncle. Maybe accusations of disloyalty in in India right now. To come to Christ is to say that you are not good enough Uh, to be Indian. To be Indian, in many people's minds, is to be uh, Hindu. And if you come to Christ, uh, you are disloyal to your country. And it may be as severe as laying your life down like John did. Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells us, and it'll be behind me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Though the disciples experienced success casting out demons and healing the sect, 
the, the sick. Death and evil, evil loomed in the horizon. Why? Because the heart of man is evil and resists the message of the kingdom. Everyone who is faithful to the authority of Jesus and preaches the message of Jesus will face the suffering of Jesus. Some of you, if today you're not suffering, it will come. Might be tomorrow, might be next week, next year. The suffering for Christ will come. If some of you aren't suffering for Christ, it's maybe because you're not doing it right. Maybe because you don't know Jesus. You haven't submitted to his authority. You haven't submitted to his message. And you are looking to please the powers and the influential people. And you keep quiet. When Jesus calls us, he sends us out. He does not promise us a successful career and protection from sickness and ordeals or tyrants, but he promises he will go with us wherever we go. He doesn't promise that we'll always get to choose where we go. Jesus may call us next door or to death's door, but wherever you go, you're representing Christ. In order to serve Christ, we must die to ourselves and surrender to the suffering of Christ. Yet this is the promise of the gospel. If you suffer a little while, there will be a day, as Paul wrote in verse, uh, Romans 8, for I consider the sufferings of this present time, 60, 70, 80 years, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Ocean Park, those of you who have faced suffering, scorn, lost opportunities, do not lose heart in the face of opposition and suffering. Our Lord and our Master and our King is returning to gather us home into the banquet with the saints in fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And on that day, the sufferings of this life will be a faded, forgotten, bygone memory. Until that day, following Jesus means surrendering to the sufferings of Christ. When people use us and when people hate us, we can say, all to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel thy sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. Surrender to his authority, to his mission, and to his suffering. Judge Zinn Van Veter was faithful throughout his life in surrendering to the call, his life to the call of Christ. Even in his retirement, he did not waste his retirement, but used it for the glory of God. He was often found when he was in his home in Tampa. He was found at the Florida Baptist uh, Seminary or Florida Baptist Institute, and he opened his home for fellowship with the students that were there. One such student was a young man named Billy Graham who would write years later that Van, uh, Van de Veter was a great influence on his life and on his preaching. Because Van, um, Van de Veter's faithfulness to surrender his life to Christ his surrendering echoed through the preaching of Billy Graham and all who have come since who have trusted the gospel and proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the cost of discipleship is complete surrender to Jesus Christ. I ask you this morning, have you surrendered your life to Christ?